Wouldn't it be wonderful to know that your life was pleasing to God? To know that God looked at you and said, love it, look at them. You know, that is the kind of life that pleases me. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Some people live to please others, so their, their number one concern is pleasing others. How can I keep other people happy? You know, my boss, my colleagues, my parents, my spouse, my friends, and they are people pleasers. Other people live to please themselves, so their attitude is, stuff what other people think, I'm going to do just what pleases me. But what about pleasing God? Surely that should be our highest concern, to live our lives in a way that pleases him. And wouldn't it be wonderful to know that your life was pleasing to God? It would be wonderful, wouldn't it? It would be a relief, it would be a joy to know that. But what does a life pleasing to God actually look like? Well, first it must be a life of faith in God. Without faith... It's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six says. But secondly, this faith, this trust in God, the God of the Bible, it needs to be lived out in everyday life. Faith without works is dead, James 2.26. So it needs to shape how we live. And if we want to know what does that look like on the ground to live such a life, well, a good person to go to is Job. Because we know from Job chapter 1 verse 8 that Job's life pleased God. So Job 1 verse 8, right at the beginning, it said, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So Job was a model believer. He was living out his faith in a blameless life. And God was proud of him. God delighted in him. What did his faith-filled, God-fearing life look like? Well, that is what we've got here in chapter 31, that Job now tells us in some detail. So here we find out what a life pleasing to God looks like in everyday life. At the moment, do we have a right view of what a life pleasing to God looks like? Well, maybe, maybe not. This passage will tell us. Is my life on the right track, or are there areas in which I need to repent? Well, this passage will tell us. And it will also point us to Jesus, the only one whose life pleased God 100%, 24-7, and who gave his life as a ransom for many. So Job is, as we were saying last week, Job is both model believer and Christ figure. He's both at the same time. Now, it's a long chapter. Um, this is Job's final speech to his, uh, his three friends. The last verse, verse 40, says the words of Job are ended. He's making his, his final speech for the defense, if we can put it that way. So you may remember that his friends, so-called friends, have been accusing him, saying, look, Job, you've sinned in some very, very bad way, and God is punishing you for that. That's why you're suffering. That's what his friends were saying. And Job is adamant that 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 isn't true. He hasn't done anything to justify that kind of suffering. And so he now lays out in detail how he has sought to live to please God, and it covers four areas of life, as you'll see on the outline inside the service sheet. 
And the first one is sexual purity. So verse 1 he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a virgin? Virgin means a desirable young woman. So Job was committed to sexual purity. And as a married man, that meant, uh, that involved not lusting after other women. Why was Job bothered about this? Well, very simply, he wanted to please God. And he knew that lust is not pleasing to God. So verse 2, he says, What would be my portion from God above, and my heritage from the Almighty on high, is not calamity for the unrighteous, and disaster for the workers of iniquity. So he's he's recognizing that that kind of behavior, lustful behavior, would be unrighteous, it would be sinful. So sexual purity is not just about what we do with our bodies, but also with our eyes and with our thoughts. uh, What we look at, what we fantasize about. There's nothing wrong with noticing and appreciating uh, someone's beauty, What is wrong is the lustful look and the lustful thoughts about someone to whom we're not married. Now, that might be someone who walks past in the street, or it might be someone at work, or it could be an image online. Now, this, of course, is a huge, huge challenge for all of us, men and women, especially nowadays, isn't it, given... Uh, how easy it is to to access pornography online, uh, not just on computers, but on our phones now. It's just so easy. There's a massive temptation. And the question is, how can we win this battle? Well, we need Job's determination for a start. When he says there in verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes, that is a very intentional thing to do, isn't it? You don't drift into that, very intentional. And his main concern was, what does God think? There's a very helpful online uh, resource called Covenant Eyes to help people struggling with pornography. And the name is taken from verse 1 here. And the idea is that you choose somebody, someone you know, who's going to hold you accountable for your online behavior. And they basically get notified via some app of all the sites that you're visiting. So it's an accountability partner. Now, that kind of accountability is really, really helpful. And there'll be plenty of people here who have that app and use that. But the best accountability partner is God. It's God himself. And God doesn't need to have the Covenant Eyes app to track our online activity. Verse 4 says, Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? So God sees everything. In verses 4 to 8, Job refers to my ways, my steps, my foot, my eyes, my hands, my heart. God sees it all. And Job was living for for this audience, the audience of one, to please him, to please God. Now, living for this audience of one means that even if other people can't see what we're doing, we know, well, God can and we want to please him. This meant as well that Job said a big no to adultery. So verse 9, he says, If my heart has been enticed towards a woman, and I've lain in wait at my neighbor's door. 
So he's saying he hasn't done that. He knew that in God's sight, adultery is, he says in verse 11, how does he call it in verse 11? A heinous crime deserving of God's judgment in the courts in verse 11 and in the fires of hell in verse 12. In our society today, of course, adultery is seen as just an adventure. We were thinking about an adventure earlier. People see it as an adventure. It's just a bit of fun. Apparently over 40% of those with Tinder profiles are married or in a relationship, but seeking dates. We need to see it as God sees it, as Job saw it, and we need to be on our guard against adultery. So if you're, you find you're, that you're attracted uh, to someone of the opposite sex at work, uh, you feel there's a bit of chemistry there with somebody at work, and if they say to you one day, Hey, how about we go out for coffee after work? Do not be naive. Or a few months later, you're going to be booking a hotel room together. If we want our lives to be pleasing to God, we need to have Job's commitment to sexual purity. And it begins with a heart, doesn't it? As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.8, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart. And he urged us, and he, uh, Jesus urged us to take radical action to deal with lust, which he described as being committing adultery with someone in your heart. And where we've sinned, we need to come to God in repentance and faith. We need to ask for his forgiveness, and we need to ask for power by his spirit to live differently. And if we find that we have developed habits that are proving unbreakable, do reach out for some professional help and support. Uh, We have Christian counsellors that we can link you up with, so do reach out to us. And if you're feeling defeated, if you're feeling condemned at the moment in this area, the fact that you are fighting the good fight, the fact that you are not giving up, is itself pleasing to God. And you're not alone. We are all sexual sinners who need God's grace And Jesus alone lived this out perfectly. So that's the first thing. A life pleasing to God involves sexual purity. Secondly, social justice. That is, treating other people rightly and justly. So verse 13, he says, If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? That is, rises up at the judgment. Job was a wealthy guy. He had a whole host of servants. And he says here that he treated them rightly. He treated them justly. He took any complaints they had seriously. Why? Well, because he knew that this pleases God. He was concerned with what God thought. And he recognized that both master and servant were equal before God because, what does verse 15 says? They're both created by him. So verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make him? So God cares about how we treat those who serve us. Uh, You might say, well, I don't have a team of servants. But, you know, in the workplace, we have people we manage. We have people who report to us. Uh, You have people in the workplace doing service jobs. You've got cleaners, you've got security, you've got kitchen staff, you've got admin. And in our homes and in our personal lives, 
you may well have a cleaner, or you've got a nanny, or you've got a concierge in your block of flats. You've got, we've got the delivery drivers who bring us our food deliveries and our parcels and so on. We've got waiters in the places we go out to eat, assistants in shops. We've got cashiers at the tills. We've got train staff. We've got street sweepers, and on it goes. It matters to God that we are treating people rightly, that we treat people with love, with care, with justice, that we're not rude, we're not dismissive, we're not patronizing, we're not superior. And Job didn't neglect the needy. He says in verse 16, if I have withheld anything from, uh, from the poor that they desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. So Job was saying he cared for the poor, the widow, the fatherless. He gave them uh, food in verse 17. He gave them shelter in verse 18. He gave them clothing in verses 19 to 20. Now, we know, don't we, that people's biggest need is to hear the good news about Jesus and to be saved eternally. But that does not mean, it doesn't mean we can just neglect their more immediate material needs. God wants us to be people of compassion, people who love the needy, who care for the needy, whether that's asylum seekers or the homeless or our own neighbours who are in need or the needy here in our own church family. And Job didn't abuse his position and power. He didn't take advantage of other people as he could have done. So verse 21, he says, If I've raised my hand against the fatherless, because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. And again, notice his concern to please God and his fear of judgment. Verse 23, he says, For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I couldn't have faced his majesty. So Job's overriding concern again and again is, what does God think? See, he's living for the audience of one in everything. Rolf Harris was an Australian TV entertainer, musician, artist, and whenever he would um, start to draw something or paint something, he did did children's programs and all this kind of stuff, he'd start to draw or paint something, and then his tagline would always be, can you tell what it is yet? So he's sort of drawing the first few lines. Well, as we watch Job drawing this portrait of a life pleasing to God, can you tell what it is yet? Does it remind you of anyone? Well, it's a portrait of Jesus, isn't it? That he perfectly lived this out, a life of such compassion, such care for the needy, and his perfect life was the sacrifice to pay for our failure. But if we are those in Christ, we are called to be like him. And we are called to be like Job. The the Stop the Boats plan for asylum seekers launched by the government this past week, it seems, doesn't it, shamefully lacking in compassion and care for the needy. But we need to make sure that we ourselves are caring for the needy. Otherwise, in pointing the finger at the government, we're just condemning ourselves, aren't we? The third area that matters to God is true worship, that we are to worship him alone. That is a life that pleases him. And that means we are not to worship money. Verse 24, if I have made gold my trust, 
or called gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant. But he's saying he didn't. So Job had been very, very wealthy, but he's saying he hadn't trusted in his wealth, and he used it to serve other people. It's really striking how the concerns of this chapter surface, resurface in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 6, he said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then he said, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So the center circle in our lives is for God alone. It's for the creator, not for created things. So verse 26, if I looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, then he says, verse 28, this would have been a sin to be punished, for I'd have been false to God above. Now, we may not be tempted to worship the sun and the moon, as they were back then, but anything that takes God's place at the center of our lives is, as he says here, being false to God. Martin Luther, uh, the 16th century reformer, said this. He said, a God is whatever we expect to provide all good and in which we take refuge in all distress. He said, whatever you set your heart on and put your trust in, that, I tell you, is your true God. So it could be a relationship, a person, it could be work, it could be money, it could be family, it could be food could be a hobby. So a good thing that's become a God thing. Or more recently, Tim Keller put it like this. He said that our idols, that is our false gods, our idols are those things we count on to give our lives meaning. He said they're the things of which we say, I need this to make me happy. Or if I don't have that, my life is worthless and meaningless. The Lord is the one true God. He insists that we worship him alone. And where other things have taken his place, we need to come back to him in repentance and faith and ask for his forgiveness and power by his spirit to live differently and to put him back in the center. In our solar system, the sun is at the center and you've got the eight planets in orbit around it. And the reason it works, as far as I understand, the reason it works is because the sun is so massive And if the sun disappeared, it would be complete chaos, wouldn't it? So the earth would sort of fly off into space, and we might crash into other planets and so on, and life would cease. And we couldn't just say, well, I'll tell you what, if the sun wasn't there, why don't we just put the earth at the center, and it would work, wouldn't it? But it wouldn't work, putting the earth in place of the sun, because the earth doesn't have the mass, and hence the gravity, to hold the solar system together. So the sun is 333,000 times the mass of earth. Okay, I'm getting on my depth here. I'm going to stop there. But I think I... Is that about right? Okay, Rosemary's having that. Woo! Okay. And so, this is the point. God alone is big enough to be at the center of our lives and hold everything together. He alone is big enough. Anything else we put there hasn't got the mass to do the job. It's not big enough. He alone is God. And the final area here that matters to God is what we've called radical generosity. So being generous in our relationships. Uh, Not thinking about money now, but Job was generous to his enemies in the sense of verse 29. He says, if I've rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, but he hadn't. 
Uh, and in verse 30, he didn't curse his enemies. So just as Jesus himself, he would show astonishing generosity to his enemies. Do you remember those who had nailed him on the cross? He's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Some years ago, there was a, a critic who wrote an unfavorable review of a new book by the author Alain de, de Botton. And in response, Alain posted angrily on, on this critic's personal blog, I will hate you till the day I die, and I wish you nothing but ill will in every career move you make. Wow, what a response to a bad review. But that's how our sinful nature responds to enemies. But by God's grace, we are to be generous, we are to be forgiving to that colleague at work who's making life difficult for you, that unreasonable boss, that neighbor who seems to have it in for you, maybe that person at church who said something in the past to offend you. Job was generous to his enemies and to strangers, verse 31. He says, if the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I've opened my doors to the traveler. So Job's doors were always open, showing hospitality, and not just to friends, but to strangers. And so we are to be welcoming to all people as he was. At church, we're to be welcoming and to be including newcomers, outsiders. And we're not to be putting sort of barbed wire fences around our social groups with signs saying, keep out. So Job was generous, and he wasn't a hypocrite. He wasn't a hypocrite. So he wasn't pretending to be one thing when in reality he was another. So verse 33, he says, If I've concealed my transgressions, as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. So he's saying he was honest with others about his failings. He wasn't claiming to be perfect. He was pursuing a life of integrity, but he was open about when he failed. Now, that is what it means to do what 1 John says in chapter 1, when it says we are to walk in the light as believers. Walk in the light. It means we're to be committed to living as Jesus did, but we're to confess when we fail. At the moment, uh, we and other churches are taking a stand against the Church of England bishops who are proposing prayers of blessing for same-sex couples. But as we stand publicly for the Bible's teaching on sex and marriage... We need to guard against being hypocrites. We need to be committed to sexual purity ourselves. We need to repent of our sexual sin. And we need to recognize our own failings and our need of God's grace. Back in January, there was um, a chief inspector in the Met Police who uh, faced charges of child pornography. Chief inspector in the Met Police on charges of child pornography. And there were thousands of items that had been found in a secret room in his home. And he ended up taking his own life. We need to beware living a double life ourselves. Outwardly, being one person. In reality, someone very different. Especially if we have positions of leadership. God calls us to be people of integrity. And that means no secret room. No double life. Sin loves the dark, doesn't it? Sin loves hiding in the darkness. And so a first step to dealing with sin is to bring it out into the light, maybe share it with a good friend, reach out, ask for help. 
And with that, Job rests his case. Verse 35, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. So he's basically, he's made his final statement for for the defense. He signed it. And he's confident that he is innocent of the charges against him and that he's suffering unjustly. And he now challenges God himself to answer him. And in the last bit, verses 38 to 40, he even calls on the creation, on the the land, his land, as his witness that he's acted with integrity. Now, it's bold stuff from Job, isn't it? It's really, really bold stuff. Now, where does it leave us? Well, where it leaves us depends. It depends on how our own lives compare to, to this portrait. So as this picture of the righteous life was being drawn... We asked Rolf Harris's question, can you tell what it is yet? Or can you tell who it is yet? Can you tell who it is? So who does the portrait in this chapter look like? Well, it looked like Job, and it looked like Jesus, and it definitely didn't look like Rolf Harris, who ended up in prison for indecent assault against children. The question is, does it look like you? Does it look like me? Well, what would we say? Well, as we close, let me outline three options I put on the sheet. Firstly, if my response is not at all, as in this doesn't look at all like me, I should be worried, I should be concerned about that, because if I say I'm a Christian, but the portrait in this chapter looks nothing like me at all, that is a cause for concern. Because a living faith bears fruit. So it probably means that you don't have a living faith in Christ yet. 1 John 2 verse 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk, that is to live, in the same way in which he walked. And if you're somebody who's not a Christian, perhaps you've dismissed Christianity because you say, well, Christians are hypocrites. But it may be the people you've come across were not real Christians, even though they wore the label. And it would be good to try and find a living one. Secondly, uh, if my response is, well, looks something like me, the the portrait in this chapter looks something like me, I should be encouraged to pursue being more like Job, more like Jesus, by God's grace, in the power of the Spirit. And maybe, maybe God has put his finger on some sin in our life through this chapter. Now the devil... The devil would love to crush us with guilt about that. And we may feel, we may feel, well, look, my life isn't pleasing to God, so surely he doesn't love me anymore. Now, we need to be careful here. We need to separate out those two things quite carefully. Life pleasing to God and God loving us. If I am in Christ, God loves me as his child even if there are things in my life which displease him. Yeah, we need to hold the two together. So, you know, as parents, we love our children unconditionally. We always will, you know, whatever they do. If they behave wrongly, that will displease us, and we will let them know that, and we will urge them to live lives in a way that do please us, but we don't stop loving them. And so it's the same with our our Heavenly Father, that in Christ, he loves us, and he wants us to live lives pleasing to him. 
And 1 Thessalonians 4.1 urges us to do so more and more. And one of the marks that we are his children is as we become, of, become aware of ways that we're not pleasing to him, we confess these things, we turn from them, we press on in the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives pleasing to him. A third response is to say that this chapter is a pretty good portrait of you. And you're not saying you're sinless, but by God's grace, you are living out your faith with integrity as Job was. And that's fantastic. If that's you, that's great. But perhaps like Job, maybe you're thinking, well, given I am living to please God, why am I suffering? Why is life not working out better? You know, I don't get it. It doesn't add up. You are in good company. Job didn't get it either. And that's the big puzzle, of course, at the heart of this book. Why is a righteous person like Job suffering so terribly? And it's a puzzle we see ultimately in Jesus himself. And it's a puzzle we may not find an answer to in this life. Job didn't. What we must not do, what we mustn't do is to conclude, well, maybe there is some secret sin after all that I am being punished for. That's what Job's friends thought. They were wrong. Instead, be encouraged that you are in good company. The company of Job and of Jesus. And that one day, like them, you will too be vindicated. Let's pause to uh, reflect on this and then we're going to join together in prayer.